Seventy years of stories about Bigfoot have failed to produce a single credible photograph, let alone a body. So, we're back to footprints. In 1969, near Bossburg, Washington, there were a staggering 1,089 of them left in mud and snow. The tracks of a very long-legged creature, but curiously, also a crippled one. Its right foot had twisted toes and misplaced bones, something that would be unusual, yet very natural. At Washington State University, the prints have been studied by primate anatomist and Bigfoot author, Dr. Grover Krantz. Footprints are just dense in the ground, but they can tell an expert about the foot that made them. From the position of these bulges, I was able to deduce the position of some of the key bones in the center of the foot and then reconstruct all the bones of the foot and uh, found most interesting that the center weight of the ankle was substantially forward of where it is in a human foot. If we had an erect biped eight feet tall and it was going to walk in a human manner, how much farther forward would the ankle have to be placed? I did some simple arithmetic calculations on that, got an exact answer. Then I went back and measured my reconstruction. It was exactly correct. That was enough for me to be absolutely sure that those feet were made by a living creature. Is there no way these could be hoaxed? If the Bosberg tracks of the crippled individual were made by a hoaxer, there are several considerations. One is that he had to know human anatomy with great detail. He had to be able to devise distortions of the anatomy. 
and he had to calculate exactly how an enlarged individual would have to be constructed in order to walk properly. That requires uh, an elaboration of thought and knowledge that I don't think anybody in the world has. Grover Sanders Krantz was born on November 5, 1931, in Salt Lake City, Utah, to Sweden immigrant parents Victor and Esther Krantz. He was the youngest of three boys, having two older brothers named Victor and Eugene. During Krantz's upbringing, they were pious members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. While his mother disliked Krantz's open aversion to religion, they remained close throughout her entire life. The same could not be said of Krantz and his father, though, who died when he was still in grade school. Grover's widow once quoted, His dad was sort of pompous. He was never wrong. He wasn't really a father, but more of a dictator. When Grover was about five years old, his father made him and his two older brothers stare at a blank piece of paper for ten minutes, and then asked them what they saw. Confused, they said they saw nothing, to which he responded, no, you dummies. It's a blank sheet of paper. It was at around age nine that Krantz really became engrossed in science and began rejecting his strict Mormon upbringing. Right around this time, Grover's father, Victor, died. The day after his father's funeral, Krantz returned to school, surprising his teachers. When they told young Krantz he should be home grieving, he responded, not for him. After his father's death, Grover didn't remain terribly close to his brothers, mostly due to the age gap between them, both brothers having regular jobs. But when they did spend time together, they always got along. Victor became a photographer at the Smithsonian, and Eugene, a military pilot who later worked in government affairs. His brothers both remained Mormon, but Krantz walked away and never looked back. From Washington, our team of investigators stalked the legendary Bigfoot. I think we scared him as much as he scared us. And we finally captured Sasquatch with heat-sensitive radar. Yeah, I see him. I'm John Marshall, and welcome to Encounters, the Hidden Truth. You know, one of the most popular legends of the unexplained goes by a somewhat ridiculous nickname, Bigfoot. But behind the legend, there may lie some startling truths. I traveled to the wilds of Washington to separate fact from conjecture, and I learned one thing. There is a good reason why this legend has endured for thousands of years. Native Americans in the Pacific Northwest called it Sasquatch. European settlers called it Bigfoot, but everyone calls it a mystery. Is it possible that the missing link between man and ape roams these dense forests? To the hundreds of eyewitnesses who have seen this huge creature, the answer is a definitive yes. 
I turned the headlights on him, I think we scared him as much as he scared us. It brought his hand up to block the light, let out a uh, just scary scream. We were looking at it, and our brains wouldn't register what it was because we'd never seen anything like this before. When I made eye contact with it, it was not like looking at in an animal's eyes. And uh, even though there was some distance, it, it was not like looking at an animal. There was intelligence there on the other side of the side. Although every one of these eyewitnesses describes a different sighting, every encounter shares one thing, the enormous size of the creature. He was about eight feet tall. I weighed 200 pounds at that time, and he was a good 350, 400 pounds heavier than me. His arms were as thick as my thigh. Eyewitness testimony may hold up in court, but science demands further evidence. And the most dramatic evidence collected to date is this film clip shot near Yakima, Washington in the fall of 1967. If it's a man in an ape suit, anthropologist Grover Kranz finds the performance brilliant, if not impossible. I went through it uh, frame by frame, uh, measuring everything I could on it, what the body proportions were. And I can state flatly that there is no human being alive who can fit into a costume with the dimensions that are shown there. Maybe it's a man who's got his elbows out, and that's the shoulders. But then any man of that height, the elbows are much too far apart to be the shoulders. There's only one way you can do it. You get a six and a half foot tall man, go one third out along his upper arm, break it, and introduce a new joint. There is other evidence that Bigfoot exists, huge footprints, hair samples, and droppings. But we decided to look for fresh evidence and maybe a first-hand encounter. We decided to go to the area with the most recent and concentrated sightings, Grays Harbor, Washington, a scenic county at the base of the Olympic Peninsula. Thickly forested, it's a place where a large animal could hide for a long time. Undaunted, we put together a team of witnesses, technical experts, and trappers to see if we couldn't capture Bigfoot on videotape. Uh, the rough spots, what I'd say, would be about halfway to where that clear cut it's is. It's 6 o'clock in the morning. The maps are being read. The strategy is being planned. This is the last step before we head into the backcountry to look for Bigfoot. The remote backwoods area we're headed for is a place where Bigfoot was spotted just three months ago. Our hunt is nothing new. People have been searching hundreds of years for a creature whose heritage may trace back more than a million. This is the jaw of the Gigantopithecus that was found in China. This is a large adult male, and it's only the tooth-bearing part of the jaw that we have. Trying to figure out what the rest of the skull would look like, I came up with this reconstruction for the skull. This, then, is roughly what I think the uh, Gigantopithecus entire skull would look like. And I also expect that this is approximately what a Sasquatch skull would look like. We've made it to the end of the road. From here on out, there's nothing but nature between us and our quarry. Although some people outside the Pacific Northwest might scoff at an expedition like this, around here, Bigfoot is taken very seriously. So seriously that one nearby county has declared it a crime to hunt him. If you do kill a Bigfoot there, and if it turns out he's a species closely related to man, you could face murder charges and prison time. Some people believe the only way to prove Bigfoot's existence is to kill one. But on this expedition, the only shooting will be done on video. Not that we wouldn't mind finding one that died of natural causes. We don't believe in killing one just to prove it exists, but we hope maybe someday we'll come across skeletal remains when we're out here, or, or, or one that's recently died on its own, or, or something. But animals that die of natural causes aren't easy to find. If an animal dies on its own, 
it has the opportunity to choose a place where it dies. And these we virtually never find. Uh, nobody's ever found a bear that died a natural death that I've been able to locate. After establishing camp, we set out to scout the area for signs of the creature. Bigfoot is probably the best known animal in the world of cryptozoology, the study of animals that are suspected but unproven. And probably the best example of a cryptozoological animal, or cryptid, as we sometimes call them, would be the African gorilla. These were considered by the European scientists to be totally mythological beasts until the first skin and skull came into a European collection in the year 1849. Larry Lund hunted deer and elk in the woods of the Northwest for 20 years. Then he put away his guns and set out after Bigfoot. When we follow trails, and especially along the riverbeds, we look for anything that's out of the ordinary for the normal animals of the area. We look for footprints, droppings, uh, large disturbed areas. Larry spent most of his time searching for tracks along a nearby creek. Here we have a, it's probably a doe track. Yeah, it is a doe track. These leaves be pressed inside it. Maybe curious why they were stuck down the ground, it's, it, but it is just a doe track. He found plenty of deer and elk tracks, but nothing out of the ordinary. Meanwhile, Forrester Wayne Moore and former Sheriff's Deputy Fred Bradshaw led me into the high country. Later that afternoon, we found something unusual. You see something? This is an impression right here. Yeah. That's a good possible right here. You got the toes, uh, the cut edges along here for the heel. And that'd be a, at least a good 14-inch track. And given what we see here, I mean, what does it tell us about the stride? How, I mean, in terms of the, the height, of the bigness of the animal? Well, if you, if you allow that that is a, a track, then you've got a six-foot stride. And a uh, six-foot stride would be extraordinary. Would it help to make a cast of this? Yes, uh, it would uh, show with the... When you pour a casting of it, it'll pick up more of the foot impression if it, if it is anything at all. We use a plaster that is easy to mix and quick to harden. The entire process took about 20 minutes. This one's not probably one of the best ones that they've ever had. But it appears that it does have toes in it. Uh, there's one, two, three, four, and then uh, it appears to be a large one over on this side. Maybe, but the tracks led nowhere, and a few footprints made in mossy ground were not the definitive proof we were looking for. Stalking Bigfoot is no easy game. He's proven himself to be an extremely elusive quarry. To catch him on tape, we've devised a trap that includes everything from tripwires and motion detectors to floodlights and video cameras. Now, everything is set to work automatically, but we'll also rig an alarm that will alert us to Bigfoot's presence. Sasquatch researcher Todd Nice staked out a rock quarry near our base camp. Bigfoot uh, purportedly has been seen digging up uh, rodents uh, on a couple of occasions. First, he laid bait. And if we had it in one piece, it'd probably be gone in two seconds, but if we break it up, it gives him a reason to hang around a little bit. The strategy here is to lure the creature within range of our infrared sensors and floodlights. It's my hope that the shock of the lights may give us an extra 10, 15 second filling time. He also set traps in the forest nearby. Immediately around my bivouac site, I will have uh, some trip wires, which will also set off a high-pitched beep should we get anything right in the campsite itself. Yet another kind of trap would illuminate any large animal entering the area. 
The Native Americans who lived in these forests were very familiar with the creature. Physical anthropologists studied the stone carvings they left behind. It's not any of the animals that's normally encountered in the area uh, because the uh, Indians carved um, representations of all the animals that we know. This one appears to be ape-like. The only uh, explanation that anyone's been able to come up with is whoever carved this was familiar with the face of a, something like a Sasquatch. When an alarm sounded later that evening, Todd was there within seconds. Something definitely hit it because when I found it, it was pulled up here. And something had to have struck this trip line pretty good. Pretty elusive, whatever it was. The rest of the night was a waiting game. Ultimately, it became clear that no one was taking our bait. But the hunt wasn't over yet. It's now 5.30 in the morning, and we're about to catch up with the linchpin of our operation. It's a Bell Jet Ranger helicopter, specially equipped with infrared heat-seeking instruments. If Bigfoot is anywhere near here, the chopper will detect his body heat. The crew will then radio us of his position and continue to track him from the air until we can catch up with him. Are the ground conditions cool enough for you down here? Are there any problems with that? Yeah, this is uh, optimum conditions for infrared. Coordinating their movements with the team on the ground, the helicopter crew covers a 25-square-mile grid. Any warm-blooded animal in the area should register on the cockpit monitor. At first, the woods look empty. But a few minutes out, we see a warm area in the brush where a large creature seems to have been bedded down for the night. It can't be far away. And then we spot something alive in the underbrush. It looks tall, and it's huge. Right, 60 degrees. Right, 60 degrees. Okay, I'm going to swing around to the right, and maybe we can identify them. They're directly below us on the right side. Two of them standing together, barely moving. The remainder of our aerial search uncovers plenty of elk, but no evidence of Bigfoot. But that doesn't necessarily mean he isn't out here. Obviously, if the animal is uh, well hidden, the infrared can't pick them up in a cave or under a very uh, dense tree cover. If Bigfoot does live in the thousands of square miles of forest that make up the Pacific Northwest, we'll need more resources to spot it. But our trip wasn't for nothing. When you're dealing with this type of phenomenon, you're not seeking final answers. You're seeking increments in the puzzle, small pieces, small bits. And consequently, anything that you develop is more than you had before. Russell, I can well understand how a live Bigfoot would elude trackers, but uh, all creatures have to die sometimes, so where are the bones? Well, John, you'd really have to travel these woods to appreciate just how immense they are. If we assume that Bigfoot is the ultimate endangered species, there may be only a handful left alive. The odds of finding bones are stacked against us. The proverbial needle in a haystack. After graduating high school, Grover went to the University of Utah in 1949, but took a break from academia to join the Air National Guard as a member of the 191st Fighter Bomber Squadron. 
It was after this stint ending in an honorable discharge that he wound up at UC Berkeley and during that time became interested in reports of a giant man-like creature in western North America. In 1955, Grover earned his Bachelor of Science degree from the University of Utah. In 1958, he earned his Master's degree from the University of California, and in 1971, earned a Ph.D. from the University of Minnesota. He taught at Washington State University from 1968 until his retirement in 1998. Would you like to capture one? No, we're against the idea of capture. So you'd like to track? I mean, you'd like to find or... We'd like to find one, confront one if you like, and see if it's possible to communicate. So you'd like to give Peter Byrne a gun instead of a camera? Yes. Peter Byrne and his camera is never going to prove them. He may make himself uh, a nice name if he gets some uh, good film of it, but he's never going to prove it to the skeptics. The skeptics will look at everything he gets, the best he can possibly get, and they will say, fake. They've said that to Patterson's film, they'll say it to Peter Byrne. So if even one of those wasn't faked? Yeah. You don't need half, you don't need one percent, you just need one. Meaning? One real one. And then you know that the species is real. And what's the likelihood of at least one of these being real? Guaranteed. Being a proponent of and insisting that acquiring a type 1 specimen by any means necessary is the only way the scientific community will take the species seriously, the doctor was quick to make enemies within the Sasquatch community. He quickly became a highly controversial figure, but always provided stable scientific data to back up his claims. His research into the Sasquatch never consisted of an actual sighting, but instead, interviewing eyewitness accounts, and doing field research. While his colleagues may not have taken him seriously, Cranch tried to earn his Bigfoot research some legitimacy by using his background as an expert in human evolution to make an attempt to get the scientific community to accept Sasquatch as a real species. But no number of corroborating myths, casts, or eyewitness accounts would lead the scientific community to accept the creature's existence. Without a body, the species would be accepted as no more than false. Krantz knew this. After all, how could there be no physical proof of a creature that is believed to have existed for centuries? And how could an animal said to be between 300 and 1500 pounds and 6 to 15 foot tall be so elusive? He once said, They're not going to accept the existence of the Sasquatch until definitive evidence comes in. They are taking a legitimate and skeptical attitude to the subject. They want to see the definitive proof of a body or a piece of one. He believed that Sasquatch was descended from an ancient ape out of Asia called Gigantopithecus that had existed about a million years ago. He theorizes that it had potentially come over the Bering Land Bridge when the sea level was very low and migrated with a lot of other animals that came over at the time. Professor of Anthropology here at Washington State University. 
I teach courses in dealing with physical anthropology, introduction to the subject, human evolution, human races, the human skeleton, and sometimes seminars on advanced subjects. Do you feel compelled to still make the case for the existence of Bigfoot? Well, I'm satisfied that this Bigfoot thing exists. Uh, trying to make the case or argue for it on the present evidence is uh, largely uh, futile, but I'd like uh, as much as possible to let the word out as to what I found out and what I'm doing. Tell me, why is it futile? Could you elaborate on that? Almost any scientist will tell you uh, in no uncertain terms that you will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body or a substantial piece of one. No other evidence is proof. They are adamant about this. And uh, to that end, uh, there, there's been uh, a lot of controversy in the past about what you've called for. Uh, at one time, you were said to, we've talked about this before, you were going to get in an ultralight helicopter and, uh, and go around and uh, search for one throughout, throughout the woods uh, for a dead body. Remember we talked about that for a, for a body. Mm -hmm. uh, to that end, finding a body, uh, what's been your position? about this research? Well, my preference certainly would be to find a body of a natural death or one that was uh, already dead for other reasons. <clears throat> but the chance of uh, achieving that is so near zero as to be uh, almost silly to pursue it. Nevertheless, I have tried as much as possible. My uh, attempt to um, build and fly an ultralight helicopter and use an infrared imager to locate a decaying body so far has failed. The imager works, but uh, I haven't been able to get the helicopter off the ground. I'm going to make one last attempt later this summer and see what happens. You're going to try to get it up with the, in the helicopter? I'm going to try to. Um, that, that would be fun to be there. Uh, <laughs> <clears throat> no, no way. <clears throat> I don't want somebody photographing my bloody body as it's dragged out of the wreckage. <laughs> so you have tried to get, you have tried to... Uh, I've tried to make it go up and it hasn't. Uh -huh. The engines will not go around fast enough and I finally figured out what the problem was. Uh, but then for a couple of years, I haven't, or three years now, I haven't had a chance to uh, correct the situation. Mm -hmm. What is your new book about? Tell us about this. Well, I've just finished uh, writing a book. I've titled it Big Footprints which uh, explains um, all of the scientific evidence that relates to the Sasquatch. That is, all of the um, evidence that can be handled in a scientific manner. Now, this is not a uh, listing or description of all the reports of people who have encountered it. This has been well done by John Green and other people in previous publications. But I'm analyzing the footprints, uh, the Patterson film, and other bits of evidence and I'm also trying to, in this book, uh, explain to my scientific colleagues why I take this so seriously. Most of them have no idea of the quantity or quality of information on this. Why do you take this so seriously? Can you boil it down for our purposes? Well, one good reason to uh, take it seriously is the footprints that are available. When you try to consider what are the alternatives, and there's really only two choices when you look at a lot of them, uh, they are either fabricated by a human hoaxer or they are made by the Sasquatch. And when you consider the possibilities and the difficulties and the requirements for a hoaxer to do not some, but all of them, you find you run into an absolutely impossible situation. So the way I, the way I like to put it is uh, the Sasquatch is ridiculous. The alternative of a hoaxer is impossible. Therefore, the ridiculous must be true.
Bigfoot is fill in the blank. Bigfoot is a large, massive, hairy, bipedal, higher primate. You could describe it as a gigantic man covered with hair and being rather stupid, or an oversized, upright, walking gorilla. And we're talking uh, body sizes of uh, six and a half to eight feet tall, uh, body weights 500 to 800 pounds, covered with hair, incredibly strong, ape-like faces, arms a little bit longer than usual, no constriction at the neck. Uh, you got a fair description. Why has this intrigued you? For how long have you believed that there's something out there? Well, I wouldn't say I believed there was something out there. Unless, well, the term belief usually means an opinion held because it makes you feel good. The first time I ever heard of these things, I think I was about 16 years old. Oh, I believed them instantly. But did I think they were real? No, no way. I was here at Washington State University for about two years uh, before I um, finally got hold of some uh, direct information. And that uh, amounted to a pair of footprints. I got uh, saw some in the um, wild, and I got the casts and analyzed them. And the right and left foot were quite unlike each other. They weren't mirror images. One of them was obviously crippled. I analyzed those, and this was back in 1970, and finally decided that the the design of foot that's implied by the crippling was exactly what you would expect for uh, a creature about eight feet tall and enormously heavy. And I finally decided if somebody faked that and put all these subtle hints of the anatomy design in that, he had to be a real genius, expert at anatomy, and um, very inventive and original thinking. He had to be outclass me in those areas. And I don't think anybody outclasses me in those areas, at least not since Leonardo da Vinci. And I've sold such a person I'd say is impossible, therefore the tracks were real. Where does the research on the topic stand? Uh, people have been talking, there have been sightings since 1870 throughout the Northwest. I mean, reported, documented Western man since 1870. Uh, where does it stand in 1992, in the, in the early 90s? The best summary of where things stand in 1992 is just more of the same. The number of people who are reporting seeing them is just gradually climbing higher and higher. It's over 2,000 now in John Green's reports, and I would doubt that he has more than 1% of them. Uh, he has another 1,000 of uh, footprint accounts. Again, he's got maybe 1% of the observed footprints, and the observed ones couldn't be 1% of the actual ones out there. Um, bits and scraps of other evidence, um, air samples, bits of blood, uh, other things that they've done to the environment keep being reported and coming in, analyzed. In some cases, these have been dismissed and found to be fake or mistakes. In other cases, they seem to stand, but we don't know what to do with them. I would say the best new evidence that's come in um, in the last even 50 years is really two things, the Patterson film of 1967 and the um, footprints with the clear dermal ridges, like fingerprints, that came in in 1982. We've gotten no more films since then, at least none that are legitimate, though we have gotten a few more footprint casts with uh, dermal ridges. As far as I know, we are no closer to getting a body now than we were 50 or 100 years ago.
What about your colleagues? Will they ever embrace the notion of Bigfoot as scientifically significant? And how do you feel, after answering that, how do you feel with the scorn and the ridicule and the constant uh, belittlement that you've had to undergo by your colleagues? When will they ever embrace this notion and how does it make you feel that they've resisted? They're not going to embrace the idea of the existence of the Sasquatch until the definitive evidence comes in. A few of them will uh, accept it when they have done a substantial fraction of the kind of research that I've done. When they've talked to enough people, they're going to be convinced that uh, there is no other explanation. But until they do so, and not all my colleagues can do it, uh, there's simply not enough um, time in, uh, in their schedules and uh, they can't reach all the people. Uh, until they do that, they're taking a uh, legitimate skeptical attitude of they want to see the definitive proof, a body or a piece of one. That will convince them instantly. So I don't anticipate um, convincing anybody on the evidence that I've got. Now, in the meantime, they uh, continue to be, for the most part, skeptical. But there's a substantial number who um, uh, do uh, think it's real and some who um, take the possibility quite seriously. And they are now feeling a lot more comfortable about that than they were um, 20 years ago, for instance. 20 years ago, this was a taboo subject. I almost got fired here for um, investigating it and talking openly about it. Now, um, if nothing else, I've got the president of the university supporting me. Now, that doesn't get me any money or any release time or any improvement in salary. I still have to do this entirely on my own, but I've got a good moral support now. The skeptics will always ask, they'll always ask, um, man has been in the Northwest for almost 200 years, settling it for the last hundred, in the forests, on the rivers, in the creeks, um, every summer, you know, making more, more of a foray into the, into the, into the bushes, some people call it, and back into the wilds. Why haven't we found a body yet? Why haven't we found that piece of definitive evidence that will convince people? Well, with all of the human activity over the last two centuries in the Pacific Northwest, I might point out that um, nobody has yet come in with a body of a bear unless it was killed by human action. Uh, the bodies of animals that die a natural death and have the ability to choose their place of dying are notoriously difficult to find. And there's at least a hundred bears out there for every one Sasquatch. So uh, the lack of a body uh, discovered doesn't bother me at all. I would be uh, most uh, puzzled if one did come in. I'd want to know, I'd be very suspicious that I'd smell a rat if somebody said they found one. Um, but according, we've talked about this before about Jacko, the, uh, the, the ape boy, Back in the what 1920s, uh, no, 18, uh, 1889, um, 1884. Okay, um, tell me about that story. Back in 1884, when the Canadians were just finishing or near finishing their uh, transcontinental railroad, a creature was reported found uh, by the railroad crew on the Pacific end, which is well into the Rockies. The creature um, supposedly stood four feet seven inches tall, weighed 127 pounds, which is very heavy set for that height, covered with hair and obviously not human, but uh, walked bipedally. This was a newspaper account, and uh, there's uh, practically no follow-up of it. My suspicion is that that creature was taken uh, across 
they couldn't take it across Canada at the time, but they could move it down into the United States across the Northern Pacific Railroad that was just completed in that time. And uh, it reached the um, uh, railroad uh, end, perhaps at uh, Duluth, Minnesota, where uh, Barnum's Circus Men located it. And it was incorporated into Barnum's Circus as Jojo the Dog-Faced Boy. That's my best guess. I think it probably died that season. We have no idea what was done with it, and it was such a hit that they replaced it with the hairiest-faced man they could find the next season. Um, but that's as far as that story goes. That's that's kind of where it ended, right there. I'm afraid that's a dead end. Uh -huh. Yeah. There is one possible follow-up on that, and a friend of mine finally managed to do it. Barnum has a circus in uh, Connecticut, uh, one of the places where he uh, headquartered. Uh, uh, as a circus cemetery in Connecticut, and uh, a few individuals from the circus, like Tom Thumb, are buried there. So my friend went through the um, cemetery, uh, looking at all the headstones, to see if he could find a name that was reminiscent of the man in charge of Jacko, or Jacko itself, or Jojo, uh, or anything that might be remotely hinting at it, and they found nothing. Oh, they're dead end. Um, what about others in the research field? You and I have talked about this before, about the acrimony between all of these different individuals. Uh, uh, you and Renee DeHinden, for example, don't see eye to eye at all. Tell me why that happens. We have a problem with um, people in um, the real world who are uh, trying to um, bring in the definitive proof of the Sasquatch. These people uh, are basically all hunters who are trying to um, shoot the first specimen and bring it in. A lot of them will not admit that that's what they're doing, but unless they're pretty stupid, uh, that's exactly what they're after. Now, each of them knows full well that there's going to be some substantial prize for bringing in the first Sasquatch. They also know, uh, if they've given it any thought at all, that the scientific world will immediately take over and there will not only be no second prize, but if you shoot the second one, you've broken a serious law. So all these hunters are trying to not only w win that prize, but I think they're spending more time and effort trying to prevent the other guy from getting it than they are trying to do it themselves. Now, those who are really devoted to it, if they really devote their lives to this, all their life is to search for the Sasquatch. That's their only claim to fame. When it is found, they're going to be shoved aside by the scientists and become nothing. They don't want this to happen. They want either the mystery to remain or that they find it. That science ever takes over and shoves them aside is very frightening to them. Now, there are some of these hunters and investigators who are very nervous about me because I may be nudging the scientific world into acceptance. And because of that, they're they would do anything they can to stop my investigation. Where do you get your casts? It's not surprising. Okay. Um, where do you get your uh, your your casts and your evidence? Most of the casts uh, come from uh, when I hear about somebody having found a footprint and making a cast of it. I will go and talk to them and borrow the cast. I will bring it back to my lab, make a um, mold of it, and then return it and a perfect copy to the um, provider. In a few cases, I've uh, made the casts myself uh, when I've been brought to a scene and uh, footprints are there. 
maybe the person who found them uh, made his own cast and I might make a few others. Um, tell me about Paul Freeman. Uh, oh, yeah, I didn't, I mean, you alluded to Rene before, but... Uh, but I didn't use his name. No. I don't like to do that. Um, what about Paul and his research down at Walla Walla and his, and his hunting? And he's not a scientist. Uh, what about, do you, do you lump him into the, into this category? How, what kind of credence do you put in his, uh, in his work down there? Well, I think Paul Freeman's uh, footprints are probably all legitimate. He's brought in a number of other bits of evidence that uh, are either somebody's hoax, whether it's him or somebody else, it's hard to tell, or um, there's just simply um, undeterminable as to whether they're real or not. He had a photograph once, and now he has a um, short videotape of one of the creatures. Um, I would be very dubious of his photograph, uh, but I wouldn't be a bit surprised if his videotape is real. But it's not definitive, and there's nothing you can do with it to prove it. The people we talk to, and I just want to—I want to balance this out and give you a chance to to respond to what some of the people have said uh, that I that I talk to. Um, I said that if you base your research on some of the things that Paul brings in, and he has a history of admitting faking tracks before and the Forest Service saying that some of the tracks he reported were fakes. Doesn't that shed light on your credibility? Don't you, don't you worry about uh, guilt by association? How, does that, how do you respond to that? Well, anybody who brings in fake information uh, does um, shake up the, um, or cast a little doubt on uh, the rest of it. But I just sort of try to learn to live with that. Uh, I look at all the information uh, for what it's worth. Sometimes I get taken in. Uh, at least temporarily, by uh, some things. I thought a couple of films of Sasquatches were real until I found out otherwise. Little analysis and hearing stories from other people. Um, with things like uh, Freeman's evidence, yeah, if some of the stuff he brings in is not valid for various reasons, it makes uh, a lot of people worry about uh, the stuff that seems legitimate. Now, I tried to draw a sharp line there. Uh, just because uh, some of his uh, information is not valid, that doesn't necessarily throw it all out. I had the same problem 20 years ago with a fellow named Ivan Marks up in northeastern Washington. He uh, faked a film and has since faked many others. But prior to the faking of the film, uh, he uh, brought in a fair number of casts and had a number of accounts of it. And I'm satisfied that all of his evidence up to a certain point was valid, then he got impatient and started faking films. Anyone who knew Dr. Krantz, or at least knew anything about him, knew his deep love for dogs. Big dogs, but particularly his dogs. Ever since he was 16 years old, he dreamed of getting an Irish wolfhound. Something about the creature's amazing size fascinated him. When Grover was 32 years old, he bought his first Irish wolfhound named Clyde. Clyde lived just 10 years. In his memoir, in tribute to Clyde titled Only a Dog, Dr. Krantz wrote, During that time, he was the most important influence on my life. This is not intended to underrate the influence of my last wife, Evelyn Einstein, or the beginning of my career as an anthropology professor, but it is dubious that either of them would have happened if he hadn't been with me. Even though Clyde was very much a canine, 
To Krantz, his personality made him seem nearly human, something that captivated him. Once, when Krantz came home inebriated, he cuddled up with Clyde on his dog bed, a double sleeping bag on the floor, and soon fell asleep, only to find Clyde lazily lounging on the human bed the next morning. He never got another chance to pull that trick, Krantz wrote. When Clyde died in 1973, Krantz buried the dog next to his driveway with the intention of preserving his remains and examining his bones after he decomposed. Krantz had other dogs before Clyde and would adopt more after, but none who would ever compare. When it came time to exhume the corpse, Krantz downed a gallon of liquid courage and dug him up. As he washed and brushed off the bones, the unbearableness of the experience seemed to cripple him emotionally. Flesh of my flesh, he murmured while scraping the remains. I could more easily have cleaned off the skeleton of my own father. When Krantz was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in early 2002, he coordinated with the Smithsonian Museum to have his body donated to the Physical Anthropology Division on one condition. You have to keep my dogs with me, he said. An agreement was reached and the museum acquired his and those of his many dogs' bones, along with other materials, including his research papers and Sasquatch tracks. When he died eight months later, there was no funeral per Krantz's request, and his corpse was shipped to the University of Tennessee Body Farm, or otherwise known as a Forensic Anthropology Center, where researchers study human decomposition in real time. Krantz's bones, and those of his dogs, then sat in a drawer of the Smithsonian until 2009, when he and Clyde's full skeleton were placed on exhibit in the National Museum of Natural History. Inside a glass case, Krantz's six-foot-three skeleton stands together with Clyde, posed on his hind legs, paws on Grover's chest, it can still be viewed today. Nobody really knows what causes this second bulge. Perhaps it's a, a muscle of some kind to support the enormous weight. This is a cast of an individual that's very obviously crippled. And um, I studied this uh, some length and found these two bulges on the outside of the foot. Why? I think it would be morally wrong. I see no reason. In fact, I talked to a small boy, a schoolboy recently, and he said some people say shoot one to prove that they're there. And then he said, supposing they won, that the one they shoot uh, is the last one. Well, my answer to that is uh, if they become extinct, uh, uh, so what? If they're not proven, it doesn't make any difference. We have a lot of animals that became extinct in the past, and there's nothing we can do about it. And if, we, if this animal remains unaccepted, uh, who cares if it becomes extinct? There are a number of um, footprints that I've seen that um, are faked, and this can be done. But on the other hand, there are a few that show some characteristics that I think could not have been faked. This is one such footprint. This uh, cast, I've uh, drawn in the approximate reconstructions of the bones. This uh, is a crippled individual where a couple of bulges have This is an example of one footprint. This is a plaster cast 
which shows a crippled individual. The foot was twisted and two bulges appear, calloused structures on the outside edge. The number of Sasquatch is very difficult to estimate, of course, but uh, within the northwestern part of the United States, I would be inclined to estimate in the vicinity of 200, with perhaps uh, at least an equal number in the adjacent parts of uh, western Canada. If there were fewer than that, then it does not seem to be a, a viable breeding population. Any more than that, I would think they'd be seen more often. That's not as convincing as this other track. This is a 17-inch track that was picked up in northeastern Washington state. And this is what was evidently a crippled individual because, you know, as to the total population, I've um, worried about this a good many times. And I'm making now a flying guess that there's in the Pacific Northwest of the U.S. and adjacent Canada, somewhere in the ballpark of 2,000 of them. How does he know this? How does viable evidence to support this? This come from, they lean forward at the hip uh, more than a normal human does or should. When they put weight support on one foot, they bend the knee, so. Whether by coincidence or design, most the Patterson subject walks with the body lean, leaning forward and the knees largely bent so that when it takes a step, it supports the leg with a bent knee and keeps two feet on the ground for an unusual length of time. It also lifts the foot very high behind each step, like so. In addition yeah, to all those things, it also swings the arms, which is very difficult to imitate like this. Well, this is something I can do for a few steps rather poorly, but the Patterson subject did it for over 300 feet. I doubt that any human being could be trained to do that. And that's all she wrote for this week. I want to thank you for tuning in to Bigfoot and the Citizen Scientist podcast. If you like what you heard, you know what to do. Go ahead and hit that share button, like this podcast all over social media, and spread the word to people who would be interested. Next week's episode is going to be a little doozy. I am going to be spending Labor Day at a Sasquatch hotspot doing field investigations for three nights and four days. So stay tuned for that episode that will be released at some point next week. I am unsure of that exact release date yet, but I will keep you guys in the loop. So as always, love each other, love yourself, stay safe, be kind, and until next time.